It's good to be with you. My name is Charlie Jackson. I am the Director of Ministry Support. I get to serve on staff here at Covenant Life Church. And this morning, uh, I've been tasked with preaching the Word of God to you. I'd like to begin with just a quick reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, so that we might know the reason for which Paul wrote his letter to Timothy. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. If you were to poll soccer fans and players asking them who the greatest manager of all time is, most of the Western world at least would say that Sir Alex Ferguson holds that title. Ferguson was the 26-year manager of Manchester United and had remarkable success, winning 13 Premier League championships and numerous other championships. And upon his retirement, he wrote a book called Leading, in which he recounted crucial aspects of leadership that he learned as the head man of Man U. In his book, he shares four fundamental characteristics of captains, and he called the choosing of the captain one of the the most careful aspects of his leadership that he oversaw. He knew how crucial it was to do this well. They had four attributes that he looked for. Each captain would possess these attributes in order for him to choose this man to lead the team. The first is they must have the enthusiasm to lead. The second, they must share his vision for the team and be trusted to relay the message. Third, they must be someone the team holds in high regard and listens to. And four, they must have the ability to properly address the challenges that are in front of them. Ferguson knows exactly what to look for in a leader on the pitch. And the kind of leader his team needed is not so different from the type of leadership Paul called Timothy to. The necessity of good leadership has always been critical. God's people need godly leaders who desire to lead, who are respected by God's people, who are clear-eyed on the mission of God, and who are able to lead through the difficult terrain of an ever-hostile landscape of false teaching and worldliness. The necessity of good leadership is true even within the church, and perhaps one might say, especially within the church. In order for the church to have success, or in other words, in order for the church to gladly, to joyfully submit to and obey God in all things, they need healthy leaders. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy. So that Timothy, Paul's precious true child in the faith, will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. And as the Ephesian church read aloud Paul's letter, they learned what kind of leaders they needed to identify from among themselves. Faithful leaders who would confront false teaching and work to, as Ephesians 4.13 says, attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. But this book isn't limited in its scope to elders. The team's captain on the soccer field needs teammates who will follow his lead, who will behave as he does, who will commit themselves to the mission as he does, who will do what they can to strengthen his leadership and submit to his faithful guidance. Likewise, the church needs members who will respond well to good leaders. The good news For us in fighting for and submitting to good leadership in the church 
is that with their help, with the help of good leaders as God's gift to us, we can avoid the pitfalls of false doctrine. And we can grow up in all aspects into Christ. Week by week, verse by verse, we've sought to understand, to learn the book of 1 Timothy, one pearl at a time. And the hope this morning, through this overview of 1 Timothy as we conclude our series, is that these pearls become strung together, that the brush strokes reveal a work of art, and that the chisel is pulled away so that we might see the sculpture. 1 Timothy is a book for the church, yes, even covenant life church, which means it's a book for you, and it's a book for me, and not just our elders, and not just our deacons. Therefore, let us go before God in prayer, that he might help us to know his word, to love his word, and to act faithfully according to it. Join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to be a church that loves your word, that seeks to know your word, that seeks to obey your word, to apply it to our lives in every way that would be honoring to Christ that would make much of you. We want to be a church that glorifies you in and among us, your people. We cannot do that apart from knowing and loving and obeying your word. In these next moments, as we recall what we have learned from Paul's letter to Timothy, I ask for a special measure of grace to be given to us so that we might honor you with how we respond to your word. Lord, I need your assistance. This is, at best, an average sermon from an average man, a man fraught with sin, a man in need of grace and mercy. So would you help me to proclaim your word faithfully? I cannot do that on my own. We cannot receive your word faithfully on our own. We need your spirit's help. In these next moments, would you honor this request according to your perfect will and your good pleasure for your glory and the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to pull out a Bible from the pew back in front of you, we will be taking a look at 1 Timothy from the New American Standard Translation. You can find the book of 1 Timothy in the second half of the Bible in the New Testament on page 162. This morning, as I've already mentioned, my task is to help us understand Paul's basic message to Timothy and the Ephesian church. And if I could sum it up in five words, it's this. God's people need good leaders. God's people need good leaders. Timothy was a young pastor serving at Ephesus, and Paul wrote to him in order to help him preserve sound teaching within the church and overcome the influence of rogue leaders within the congregation. If you're a note taker and would like to follow along with an outline, there will be six uh, points in this morning's sermon to help us track the message of 1 Timothy, and they all begin with a simple heading. The heading is this, good leaders in the church. And so if you write that at the top of your sheet, good leaders in the church, you can then follow along by writing the rest of the points out in your notes. As we move along, I'll make sure to repeat these for you. First point, which covers all of chapter one, and it should be on the screen. Good leaders in the church instruct sound doctrine. Good leaders in the church instruct sound doctrine. 
The problem of bad leadership has plagued God's people since Adam failed Eve in the garden. And it all stems from a neglect to know and to love and to obey God's word. What the church at Ephesus was wrestling with is revealed in the opening verses of chapter 1. Men who were teaching strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. They were claiming to be experts in God's law, but failing to teach that the law shows us our own sinfulness. Paul instructed Timothy to remain at Ephesus in order to instruct these men against these teachings. False teachers always take God's word, distort its purpose and meaning, and avoid promoting godliness. Good leaders take God's word and correctly teach what it means and aims for something better. Paul corrects the false teachers by showing a gospel-centered aim. He says in 1.5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He also used his own story, his own testimony to share the law's purpose in revealing the sin that separates us from God. The law and Old Testament genealogies do not show us some mystical way to salvation. You won't be saved because of some special family line that you belong to or because of some particular ethnicity. Salvation does not come through some myth, and it's not based on any particular devotion any of us have to secondary or third-degree doctrines. You will never earn justification before God through a good bloodline, through loving works or particular allegiances. God is absolutely not impressed with what you bring to the table since everything that you could possibly bring is stained by sin. Rather, we must trade in the filthy rags of sin for the spotless garment of Christ through faith and repentance. The mediation between God and man is nothing other than the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Salvation, right standing before God, does not come through any other means. Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all who find the grace and mercy and love and faith that is in him. And salvation is no secret. And it's not only for certain kinds of people. And so the invitation today is that if you have yet to believe in this message of Christ crucified for the sins of the world, raised on the third day and ascended into heaven who will one day return to take his church into his eternal kingdom with him, the invitation is for you to believe that. And so let me invite you, if you would like to talk more about this gospel message, we have members and pastors who would love to discuss that with you afterwards. Friends, good leaders promote that doctrine. They instruct that gospel message in their ministry as the only possible hope in life and in death. A rejection of that kind of faith leads to dire consequences. Rejection of sound doctrine in the church leads to remarkably bad circumstances that you will find. And we dare not miss these in 1 Timothy. There are warnings against ungodliness, false teaching, and earthly loves among the leaders and thus among those who follow the leaders. Listen to the warnings that are in 1 Timothy. Paul discusses these things. Shipwrecking your faith. Falling into the condemnation incurred by the devil falling into the traps set by the devil, deceitful spirits and demonic doctrine that leads to apostasy, men failing to provide for their families, sensuality, charging elders falsely with sin, hastily bringing on elders, pursuing godliness for monetary gain, 
and the griefs of piercing pains that come from the love of money. A refusal to follow sound doctrine and to uphold these things results in disaster. And I don't just mean physical disaster, I mean eternal disaster, the wrath of God that comes against sinners. There are numerous other warnings that can be inferred from 1 Timothy about failing to abide in and by God's word. That means that we, Covenant Life Church, are not so separated from the Ephesian church. We wrestle with knowing and obeying God and his word every single day. We need leaders in the church who will hold fast to sound doctrine to help us to know and to love and to obey God's word. In addition to good elders in the church, we need faithful dads and moms, capable CLI teachers, loving classroom coordinators in CLK, and community group leaders who are committed to the precious gift of sound doctrine in the church. Over and over again in this book, you'll see Paul's refrain commanding Timothy to teach and preach these things. Leaders in the church, particularly our elders, teach and preach these things, the sound doctrine, the undefiled doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your ministry. Ultimately, this love for God and his doctrine should result in a, in a particular kind of praise that's directed at Jesus Christ. And over again, Paul in 1 Timothy erupts into this kind of praise. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16 is an example of this. He says this, speaking of Christ, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Good leaders in the church instruct sound doctrine. Point number two. This covers all of chapter two. Good leaders in the church Uphold what is proper. Good leaders in the church uphold what is proper. The church also needs leaders who will uphold decorum, what is proper within the church. How ought we to behave? Men who lead in prayer, who avoid wrath and disunity, and women who adorn themselves with good works that accord to godliness, who quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, is proper within the church. Dear church, we need, we need men who will pray. I was so served by Micah's prayer. And I know that you will continue to be served by Ronnie, who, who just shared with us that every Thursday morning at 7 a.m., beginning in a few weeks, we will be in prayer together for the church plant in St. Petersburg. We need people who will pray. We need men to lead us in these things. We need prayers of the people in this passage uh, that Paul gets into uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He, he relates the prayers of men directly to the affairs of the state, which I think is interesting. He says, first of all, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, Then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. There's a key word that you'll find over and over again in 1 Timothy all godliness and dignity. So let's see how we can apply this right now. And I'll be honest with you, this is an area where I needed to experience growth and continue to 
This is not easy. What do your prayers look like? If we were to take a look at the transcript of your prayers over the last month, which has been a difficult month in our nation, what do they look like? We've had the anniversary of September 11th. We've had the chaos that has erupted in Afghanistan. We have had vaccine requirements issued by the president. We've had new tax policy announced. These things are difficult. If you disapprove of the president's handling of these things, do your prayers thank God for Joe Biden? Do your prayers thank God for Joe Biden? Do you issue prayers of thanksgiving for him? What about if you disapprove of the governor's handling of masks in schools and teacher pay? Do the transcripts of your prayers show that you are thankful for Ron DeSantis? What about when leaders in your workplace, your school, or even your church instruct things that disappoint you, that upset you, or that even make you angry? Do you pray for them with thanksgiving in your heart, as Paul instructs us to? What do your prayers look like? Do they look like Stephen's in Acts chapter 7? when he was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin for proclaiming God's plan of redemption. He pleaded with the Lord not to hold the sin of murder and unbelief against those who attacked him with stones. Among those who were present for this martyrdom was a young man at whose feet the witnesses laid their cloaks. That young man was named Saul of Tarsus, and you also know him as the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to Timothy. Why must our prayers look this way? It is for this reason, because in God's sovereign plan, he has decreed that he will work through the prayers of his people in order to save some. Even as Stephen was dying, he was praying for, among others, Saul. And now as Paul is instructing the Ephesians, he is commending prayers to be offered for the authorities that will one day decapitate him. He knows that through the prayers of God's people, even the enemies of the gospel may repent and believe. Friends, dear church, this is what is proper within the congregations of God's people. Men who pray in this way, who lead their families to pray in this way. We need leaders who direct us in this way. Other matters of propriety are addressed for the church to follow. Ladies, Paul's instruction to women is a great encouragement, and I can do no better in representing the thrust of this text than Justin did in preaching a sermon entitled God's Good Design, and it was one hour and six minutes of glory from this pulpit. I encourage you to go and listen to it again. The station of women within the church is based on God's good design. The women of Ephesus had instruction from Paul to do what the culture around them would have prohibited them from, which is to learn as equals to their husbands. Paul instructed for the women to be taught the word of God in a culture that absolutely would have refused that. What a grace. Our church needs men and women who will pursue and promote propriety in the church, and we need pastors who will maintain the Bible's clear instruction on these matters. Godly leaders uphold what is proper, and by God's grace, the church reaps the benefit of that. Number three, Good leaders in the church serve with godly character. This covers all of chapter 3. Good leaders in the church 
serve with godly character. Leaders in the church who seek to glorify God cannot hope to uphold what is proper in the church without themselves possessing and striving for godly character in all ways. Sound doctrine in the leaders of the church is as important as godly character. You cannot have one without the other and expect to lead God's people well. That is why Paul instructs Timothy to ensure that the leaders of the church, specifically its elders and its deacons, the two offices of the church, meet certain qualifications before being recognized in those offices. The required character of elders in the church is, as D.A. Carson says, remarkable for being so unremarkable. There's nothing that uh, indicates that elders within the church or deacons within the church possess some sort of superpower, some sort of super ability to serve the people. It would be good for us to just reflect upon the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. It says this, An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Friends, this is not a list of superhuman traits. This is the list of things that Christians ought to be, that Christians ought to be. And elders are particularly tasked with the charge of teaching God's word, and so there is that qualification in there. Deacons share a similar list of qualifications with the exception of being able to teach. They are not required to do that. And so as we look into the future and consider what kind of men we desire to have as elders and what kind of men and women we desire to have as deacons, let me remind you what is required of every church member. It is our responsibility to identify the next generation of servant leaders who will instruct us in sound doctrine, uphold what is proper, serve with godly character, train themselves for godliness, show how to care for members and the rest of the and elders, and live with eternity in mind. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? We nominate qualified men to the office of elder, and we nominate faithful men and women to the office of deacon. So what do these men and women to these offices, men for elders, men and women for deacons, what do they look like in real life? Who is showing themselves to be faithful? Who are discipling those within our church? Who shows the ability to rightly divide the word of truth? Who is already serving with excellence to lead or assist in ministry? Who is regularly giving themselves to the service of other people? Who is unashamedly holding fast to sound doctrine from the word of God and encouraging others to do the same? Who has a discipleship family tree in our church with second and third generation disciples? In other words, who is modest modeling the ministry of the great shepherd of the sheep, the king of kings, the lord of lords, who among us is gladly serving the Lord Jesus Christ with his time, efforts, energy, hospitality, and generosity, seeking to lay down his own life for the sake of God's people? Who among us considers themselves to be the least important person 
in the room. Who are the ones who, as 1 Timothy 3.15 again says, who are the ones who know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth? Dear church, these are the kind of men that you need to nominate as elders. These are the kind of men and women who faithfully and with excellence serve in areas to support the ministry of our elders as deacons. Let me encourage you, as you begin to identify these people, to pray for them, to encourage those whom you see working to train themselves for these things. And there are many among us who desire the task, many men, especially among us who desire the task of eldering, but who aren't quite there yet. I confess to you that I'm one of those men and that there are several of us. I need your prayers and encouragement in this area, and so do many, many other men who seek to do the work of an elder. Secondly, elders who lead in this way are the kind of men that we ought to gladly, gladly, joyfully submit to. We nominate elders to lead us so that, among other things, we might joyfully reap the rewards of godliness in the church. Again, I think Hebrews 13, 17 is good to reflect on here. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Friends, there's a spiritual profit to gain by gladly submitting to faithful elders who uphold sound doctrine who promote what is proper in the church and who serve with godly leadership. Our hope in all of this results in a godliness that shines brightly in the world of sin. Good elders in the church are a gift to us from Christ himself. If you'd like to learn more about that, let me encourage you to reflect on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16 this week to discover more about what Christ supplies the church in his victory over sin and the grave. In his resurrection and ascension, he bestowed to the church men like our pastors, gifts from God that help lead us to fullness in Christ. Number four. This covers all of chapter four. Good leaders in the church train themselves for godliness. Good leaders in the church train themselves for godliness. Chapter 4 opens with a hard reality, the reality that will face faithful pastors over and over again. The longer that they serve, the more they will see it. And that is this, apostasy, apostasy. And that will happen to some members within the church. The pathway to avoiding apostasy comes in the regular disciplines of the faith. And in so doing, Leaders in the church show themselves to be good servants of Jesus Christ. Leaders are at risk of apostasy. And so it's important that they train themselves for godliness. Good leaders discipline their minds and their bodies to godliness. Like an athlete who prepares for competition is the elder who readies his soul for the work of ministry. A disciplined elder knows that success in ministry does not come from disciplines that lead to earthly measures of success. There are plenty of elders who have and who will reach heaven with having never seen more than a handful of conversions in dozens of years of ministry. Rico Tice says failure is being successful at the wrong things. 
and success for the pastor is standing before his shepherd one day after a life of cutting the word straight and living with clean character and hearing those precious words that will sustain his joy for all eternity. Well done, good and faithful servant. A discipline for godliness looks like 1 Timothy 4.12. In speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Disciplined elders are to take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. 1 Timothy 4.15. Dear elders, take pains with these things. Fully absorb yourself in the discipline of godliness for the glory of God and the good of his people. Still, Paul knows that some will fall away. There are those who will abandon the faith and incur devastation upon their souls. Church, and especially our elders, be ready for this. Be ready for this and know what to do. Know to pray and to lovingly confront. Know to protect sound doctrine and don't give an inch on what you know the Bible to teach. Remember, the aim of your instruction is love, 1 Timothy 1.5. But not just that we would be a loving people, even more deeply that we would encourage through our love a love for God and one another. And so when you see a brother or sister on the path of falling away from the faith, even those who advocate false doctrine, Stand firm in all ways. Hold fast to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and nourish yourselves with the words of faith and of sound doctrine. It is through this love that some of those who are wandering away will return in repentance and yes, even return in love to restore the relationship between them and the church and also between them and God. Leaders, and especially our elders, this is why you must pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Point number five. Good leaders in the church show how to care for members and elders. Good leaders show how to care for members and elders. This covers all of chapter 5 and the first two verses of chapter 6. In one way or another, Paul addresses everyone in chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Specifically, he touches on the elderly and the younger, the widows, heads of households, elders, slaves, and masters. There's a lot of people to care for in the household of God. There's a variety of people to care for in the household of God. Paul begins this section by saying, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. If you desire to lead in the church, you must know how to approach your fellow church members in difficult conversations. So those who would lead, when you confront someone, where's your heart? Let me speak frankly to the young men here in the room for just a moment. Some of you need to be asked, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? Some of you need to check how you are confronting or approaching 
an elderly sister in love. Those elderly sisters who sometimes, even in an imperfect love, who have a concern that they need to address with you, what is your disposition towards her? Is it that of seeing her as a daughter of God, as one deserving of your utmost respect? If you respect your mother, why wouldn't you respect this elderly sister? The truth is that it isn't just younger men and elderly women who must learn to restore the way we approach one another. It's all of us. We all need to learn to address one another lovingly as family members in God's household. Certainly there's been failure here to some degree, but there's good news. And the good news is this. In this family, we have a forgiveness that's been blood-bought in Christ. A forgiveness that is secured by the blood of Jesus. Perhaps you need to step aside with someone after the service and reconcile with them. Perhaps you've treated them poorly, or perhaps you've been treated poorly. Good leaders lead in this area of reconciliation. Take the first step. Admit your wrongdoing and seek out uh, restoration with a brother or a sister, and then do what is needed to make it right. There's plenty of grace and forgiveness to go around, and good leaders ensure that this happens, especially when they are the guilty party. Good leaders are quick to repent when they are in need of restoration with other church members. This is one of the ways that we are to care for each other. Leaders in the church also ensure that other people are cared for. In Ephesus, that included widows, households, the elders, slaves and masters, not to mention plenty of other groups of people that aren't mentioned. Again, this touches on what is proper in the church, and there's a proper way to care for widows, to ensure that the church isn't overly burdened, that those who are truly in need are cared for. It's proper for the men to exhibit care in providing for their households. It's proper for the church to care for the elders who lead well, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's why we pay Bob Walker and Justin Perry to serve on our staff. It's proper for bond servants to treat their masters as deserving of all honor for the sake of God's word. Church, we also need to ensure that an uprising of false accusations against our elders uh, does not come into the church. But if there's reason to suspect that there's actual sin, actual wrongdoing, or if multiple elders are in sin, we have the responsibility to address that in the presence of all to protect the church. We have a responsibility to care for these people in the right way. We cannot be hasty in how we do these things. And here's why. The glory of God in the church is at stake. This is why Paul said, 1 Timothy 5.21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. We must be true in confronting elders over sin, and we also must be patient in commending men to serve as elders to avoid undisclosed sin among them. Good leaders care for the church by ensuring faithfulness in addressing sin among the elders, and they know how to handle these things impartially. Leaders, our church benefits from your wisdom in these matters. Seek to develop it with all humility, gentleness, and the conviction of what is true according to God's word. Finally, the remainder of chapter 6, good leaders in the church live with eternity in mind. Good leaders in the church live with eternity in mind. 
We must be free, dear brothers and sisters, from the loves of the world and be free toward the things of heaven. Love has been a theme running through this letter either explicitly or implicitly, or as Justin might say, love in 1 Timothy is explicitly implicit. I think that's true. A serious love the world entices us with is the love of money, and Paul addresses that here. There are actually four main loves that the world will use to try and sway us away from the truth, and these are all, to some degree, addressed in this letter. There's the love of money, the love of power, the love of pleasure, and the love of freedom. In some way or another, the false teachers at Ephesus were leading people towards those loves instead of a love for God and a love for heavenly and eternal things. Paul's message to Timothy to overcome these loves is simple. There's only one love that could possibly uh, overwhelm you and trounce the best that the world can offer, and that is this, the love of God. The love of God. And an investment in that love will reap eternal rewards. And so we need leaders in our church who direct us in that way, who refuse to pursue the love of money in their lives. This kind of love can absolutely not be the impetus for ministry in a leader's life. And this is the second time in the letter that Paul urges Timothy to refuse those who have a love for money. The first came earlier, as we read, through the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3. Why would that, not, why would that be a qualification, that, that an elder does not possess the love of money? Well, there's, there's the obvious reasons, the potential under-the-table dealings, uh, the selfishness of an elder that might prevent other areas of ministry from, from receiving funding. Uh, there might be impropriety, a mismanagement of church funds, or, or just general greediness that keeps others from having what they need. But Paul takes it further. Paul goes beyond that. Leaders in the church who are given to a love of money face the real prospect of ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 says this, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. One of the reasons we cannot bring on men as elders who love money is that we run the risk of pushing them closer and closer and closer towards condemnation. Instead, we must have men serving our church as elders who live with eternity in mind. They know that their stuff will burn one day. They know that, as John said, hearses don't tow U-Hauls. Good leaders make investments in eternity that lead them to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Ultimately, with eternity in mind, good leaders guard what has been entrusted to them and urge the church to invest in what is eternal. That is, they guard the gospel, the pure and undefiled message that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners through his life and death and resurrection and that one day he will return at the proper time to bring his church into his eternal kingdom. Good leaders discipline themselves and instruct the church to invest everything, everything into that, which prepares God's people for eternity. Good leaders and good churches are faithful in this area so that we 
as the members of God's church, might be ready one day for the return of Jesus Christ. And so the question that I would ask the leaders this morning, the question that I would ask all of our members this morning, the question that I would ask all those who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior is this. Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? He will come at any moment. We must be ready. Let's pray.